Hello, and welcome back to the Local Matters Podcast. My name's Ethan, and I'm here again with Charlie. Hello. And Patrick. Hey. Today we're talking about environmentalism, the problems we face, what our government could be doing, and what you and I can do to help to protect the planet. So, by environmentalism, we are actually referring to uh, the conservation of environments, both on a planetary scale as well as on a local one, reversing the effects of industrialization and pollution, as well as smaller scale issues like littering. Environmentalism has a lot of tears as well, as Patrick said. Um, there are local things happening like housing developments, and there are national and international scales to the environmental crisis that we're in right now. If we look at things on the local level as well as on a global scale, you quickly realise that the environment has never been in a more perilous state than it is now. And this is something that most people have known for many decades now. But today, we are starting to feel the effects of it majorly. One of the main issues we face today is the harm that's done to the natural wildlife of Britain and the rest of the world. This can be seen on a local or national scale with the red and grey squirrel populations. So I think it's about the past 150 years, uh, the UK's population of reds has dropped from about 3.5 million, what I've got written here, and it's now around 100,000. So that's a drop of over 3 million. Um, and the population in England specifically, as opposed to the UK as a whole, is as low as 15,000. And that's uh, more thanks to invasive species. I think one of the worst things about this problem is that this species won't come back. It's not like we can just sort of um, slow down our use of plastic and we'll see these extinct animals reappear. We're causing irreversible damage to our environment and it's happening far too often. A lot of people think environmentalism and uh, you know ecological destruction is limited to the Amazon rainforests, but it's actually very visible here in the the UK and England. Not only to with native animal species, but also with new housing developments popping up um, and overpopulation. You can see um, the effect that we're actually having on on our local wildlife. The squirrel issue is quite a benign example at the end of the day, I think, because. They do fill similar ecological roles, but of course the red squirrel is an old symbol of England and the UK, so it would be great to restore them to their former status. But a more pressing sort of example of that would be the depopulation of bees. That's just one example of where a single species or a handful of species being wiped off the face of the... Um, that's just an example of where a handful of species having their population reduced dramatically, such as bees are currently suffering, has an unbelievable impact on the environment. And it's only when you read stories about how these populations of bees are just hemorrhaging in number and the effect that pesticides and other harmful chemicals are having on their populations that you realise how intricately linked the ecosystem of these islands is. And how much we rely on the natural world for pollination for example mm -hmm. it's the sort of thing that we wouldn't realize without science until we were already at the precipice if you know what i mean yeah the bee the bee movement is one of the biggest and uh, i'd say best marketed you know it's one of the most well-known issues in the uk um, and that's a massive thing as well because everything in nature is intertwined and it's not just oh we've got no bees anymore there's no more honey everything in the environment is intertwined so even though something as small as a bee um, can have such a huge impact on the world we live in. I think bees are a really um, good example because it's, it's something that's um, being widely talked about and it shows that um, you know environmentalism isn't just rising sea levels and deforestation and things like that. It is a much 
wider issue. I mean, there's even a Jerry Seinfeld movie about the topic. Um, so it's it's good to see that people are, you know, um, talking about things like this um, and bringing them to the public eye. And I think it's easier for people to get caught up in very specific issues and sort of forget the greater picture in that there are so many different layers, as you said, Charlie, um, to environmentalism, and it's all very intertwined. Talking about how it's affecting our own local communities and how it's affecting people's um, day-to-day lives is probably the best way to go about it because, you know, as much as I do care about the Amazon rainforest, I think it's hard for us all to imagine, you know, uh, and put into perspective the uh, effect that the, the damage to the rainforests are actually having when it's so far away from us all and we're not really there in the middle of it. But there are effects of, um, there are uh, issues with our local environment that we can see. And we should probably talk about a few of those. That's true. And on the topic of local issues, one of the main ones affecting the UK is the issue of overpopulation. This is obviously a very intersectional issue affecting the environment as well as other aspects of civic life. So should we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, as you mentioned, even in the Democracy podcast episode, uh, overpopulation is a massive issue. Uh, It affects a lot of things, especially environmentalism. But I feel like a lot of environmental groups ignore this issue. I can see why, because there can be a lot of tension around the numbers. So ideally, our country should be smaller in population. I would argue, personally, that the world should be smaller in population. We can't sustain 7 billion people. And for a lot of, for a lot of countries, uh, this is the case. You know, the average uh, birth rate in Britain is 1.79. But due to mass immigration, we bring in so many people to prop up this number um, and our population overall continues to grow rather than decline as it naturally would be doing. It's all really interconnected. So you can see that a lot of the reasons that people advocate for higher rates of immigration are to you know, stem uh, the issues brought about by an aging population. But actually what they're doing is they're trying to prop up uh, the same economic levels that we're currently seeing. Um, and this sort of uh, ideology of putting economics before um, several issues, but environmentalism through overpopulation being one of them, um, I think is a really big big factor in a lot of things. And it all ties back because obviously that same economic growth and that same level of, of you know manufacturing is also what's leading to a lot of these um, environmental issues with um, single-use plastic production and general CO2 emissions as well. That's right. You can tell how unsustainable most people's lives are in the developed world because, well, to put in the words of Jim Leap, who is one of the directors of WWF International, 4.5 Earths would be required to support a global population living like the average US resident today. And this is, reveals the absolute unsustainability of not only our lives today, but also the size of the world's population in general. Yeah, it's not just the amount of us, it's our habits as well. Our reliance on private over public transport, something as um, simple as taking the car to work. You know, obviously, these are very small things, um, but on an international scale, they have a massive effect. I mean, like you said, single-use plastics, all the wrappers we get from shops, um, all these small things, because they've just become the norm now, um, each one of us has a much heavier effect on the environment than we would have, say, 200 years ago. When speaking of 200 years ago, you can see the snowball that's happening. So I have some uh, stats here from the United Nations as well, which uh, goes over human population growth over the past thousand or so years. And they've got listed here that the world population a uh, thousand years ago, or roughly so, was less or under half a billion people. 
And it took until around the 1800s for that to finally reach 1 billion people alive on the planet. And between the 1800s and the next few years, up till the 1950s, that only raised till about, I think it was about 3, 3 billion people on the planet. Now, that, uh, 70 years later, we currently have a population of just under 8 billion. So that's an increase in the last 70 years of about 5 billion people. You can see uh, the spike on a graph. And populations are only continuing to boom. As countries in the developing world continue to see economic prosperity, it also means that their populations are spiraling as well. And how can we be expected to house all the people coming into the country? I mean, for me, um, I live in a small village, but around us, we're developing so many houses, we're essentially being connected to the nearby town. Um, actually, to the town on one side and the city on the other. Another problem that we have now is that we're just lacking the infrastructure to hold up the amount of people. Uh, even before the coronavirus, you know, last year, the waiting list for my GP was two weeks. Um, people are having to drive their child five, six miles to primary school because the two primary schools here are full. It's absolutely mental. It's just a system that generates a need for more. So you put more people in and then they have more demands. And it's a repetitive cycle and it can only go downwards. Exactly. Overpopulation has a knock-on effect on the environment as well because it has to encroach on land that has been set aside deliberately to be not developed, such as the Green Belt and areas of outstanding natural beauty. Some of us were reading a recent news article about an area in West Dorset, an area called Verse Farm, where it was, it's an area of outstanding natural beauty and it was recently applying for a grant to become or rather the status of national park but it was frustrated by a large housing development that's being planned that would be the combined size of 63 football pitches and this is the land that inspired a lot of thomas hardy's poetry so now there's a citizens movement in the area called adverse spelt v-e-a-r-s-e the same as the farm which is attempting to combat this through quite unique civil disobedience methods and Local Matters reached out to them to get their comment on it, and they said, Adverse will nonetheless continue to fight to get the best possible outcome for Bridport and its residents through thorough scrutiny and challenge of the next stages of the substantive planning application process, and will endeavour to ensure the developers honour their Section 106 development commitments. It's inspiring, and this is what can be done all over the country. It's not limited to just this group in West Dorset. Anyone listening to this podcast is already uh, more politically in tune than most people in their community, most likely. And I say that not as a slight against others, but because most people just aren't politically aware and they've got other things on their mind. But the important thing to remember is that anyone is capable of organising something like this, especially around a local issue. And however you campaign for it, um, you can make change through political activism. Uh, so what action do you really think is a good way for people to actually start out, um, you know, trying to look after the local areas? I mean, there's the obvious stuff like recycling and avoiding single-use plastics, but that's quite surface level. What sort of stuff do you think people should look into doing to try and look after their communities? Well, in terms of housing developments, especially because that is one of the biggest issues going on right now all across the country, at minimum, they can contact their MP through a private email or phone call uh, and ask their MP to do something about it. A lot of the time, politicians have too much to worry about than to get involved 
with stopping housing development, especially seeing as um, this suffering council land, which is being sold to the housing developers. So it benefits, in fact, the council to sell this land for houses to be built on it. So um, the next thing to do is to inform locally and whether you do it through Facebook posts, through uh, even as far as posters and things uh, around your town. If people are aware of the issues, that's half the battle. That's very true because a lot of these development firms know that what they're doing is against the interest of the local community. So they use quite cunning methods really to hurry pro to hurry the process and get everything done without mass public knowledge, doing everything kind of secretly. I think that goes back onto what we were talking about in the previous weeks, you know, that the um, people within a local community need to really be more involved in um, what's happening around them. That the majority of people are going to know what's better rather than leaving it down to a few selected representatives who can abuse these systems. I think that's a result of people lacking deep roots in their communities. Like, yeah, like, as you said, we said before, if people were more invested in their communities and were less sort of disinstalled and could be at home anywhere in the country, they'd be much more concerned when they saw an under construction sign popping up on their local park. There are some success stories with this. Um, I read a book called Blueprint for Revolution by Sergei Popovich, who promotes non-violent activism, and primarily he fought against dictators in Eastern Europe. He tells the story of a group of students in Tel Aviv who started a Facebook page resisting the rising house prices. And from this, they gained 2,000 followers and they invited everyone to come down to uh, one of Tel Aviv's nicest boulevards to camp in the streets. And this is what they did, and thousands of people joined them, and they said that they would not leave until law was put in place so that housing would be more affordable. Over time, hundreds of thousands of people came to join them, and eventually the government gave in. They assigned a committee to deal with the rising house prices, and today uh, those laws are still in place. This only happened a few years ago, and the strategy and context can be applied to almost any country similar. Yeah, I think um, it's a fantastic book, and one of the um, quotes in it that's repeated quite a few times I really, really like is, um, it can happen here. And I think, you know, change can happen in your own local community and across the country, but it does take the initiative of, um, you know, probably a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast, a lot of the people who are the ones to see the issues and, and go out and do something about it. It only takes a few people to make that first few steps for everyone else to walk alongside them. And that's not all we can do either. Um, campaigning and activism really isn't for everyone. Uh, it does require some effort and planning and time and money and resources. But um, there are even smaller changes we can make that do make a practical difference. One of the major ones is to buy products which are from the UK, not from abroad. Not only are there economic benefits, as we discussed in a previous episode, but the strict regulations of our country around environmentalism means that these products are made to benefit the environment better than everything we buy from India and China. And not only that, uh, when a lot of this money is going back to British manufacturers and companies, it also means that that money is being taxed and going back into the British government, which again will be devolved. Uh, around our own local communities and that's even more so seen when you buy products from a local business meaning things are directly going back into your local area and you're going to be able to see with that money hopefully um, an increased effort to be able to try and maintain those communities. There are a lot of groups across the country doing things like this already 
one of the major ones that's been the news quite a lot in 2019 was Extinction Rebellion. They were known for their disruptive actions. Um, you know, they stood on top of an underground train. They blocked off London Bridge. Um, really controversial stuff to bring attention to the environmental crisis. What do you guys think about that approach? I think it's a very interesting approach and it's not the kind that you see in most political groups nowadays um, because it's not necessarily a mass movement, I wouldn't say, although I suppose it has large membership, but its methods are more about disrupting the national economy rather than getting everybody to vote a certain way. And I think they've actually had quite a lot of success in terms of, for example, when they shut down the capital city largely, they have pressured a lot of government ministers into accepting some of their more moderate demands, such as calling a citizens assembly. So, you know, it might not be a popular way of acting, but it seems to be getting results. Yeah, I think that they are raising awareness for a lot of issues, but I am concerned as well that uh, because of how large the movement is, a lot of um, people inside it are trying to raise awareness through less than um, benevolent means. I mean, there's uh, been several reports of them vandalizing lots of structures and even, you know, some sort of greenery areas. I remember seeing that they, they were um, chopping up as some sort of awareness campaign. And I mean, I'm sure it's hard to manage that many people, but at the same time, a lot of what they're doing is also bringing a negative reception to the environmental uh, concerns that a lot of people have and, and making people who uh, actually do care about these issues uh, seem a little bit uh, kooky and crazy. I think that's largely a result of the mass side of the movement, if you know what I mean. It's so decentralised that you can get radical and other groups that follow strange methods that end up, you know, doing a lot more harm than good. So I think on the whole, though, it's been quite successful. Mm -hmm. I think that they're successful in attracting those who already agree. Um, there's already a lot of fans of environmentalism in the country. But what they don't do is attract the normal people. My parents, for example, aren't going to be interested in joining any XR activity because all they see is them blocking roads, stopping people getting to work, um, you know, delaying people who are just going to the shops. This is what the average person's concerned about, uh, and the average person isn't political, and they don't care so much about what XR is promoting over um, what they're doing in their day. And that's just the way people are, and that's fine. Um, but XR are not going to attract any new people with the same strategy of being a nuisance in public. I don't think it's within their strategy to try and attract as many people as possible, though, to be honest. If you read their, their handbook called This Is Not A Drill, they outline their method as being one of disruption, where it's like a small vanguard group that does try to disrupt the government until they accept their demands. Of course, you know, the more the merrier, I suppose, but they're not trying to attract 50% of the population and cause some mass movement to topple the government or something like that. It's simply a small concentrated pressure group, or at least that was the original idea. Yeah, I get that, but I think that what they do can put people off environmentalism as well as it brings attention to the issue. And the more disruptive or distasteful they are to the public eye, the harder it will be for politicians to accept their demands in a positive light. All organisations have their good sides and their bad sides. Do you know what I mean? There's not going to be like a saviour group. Yeah, no, no one's, no one's perfect. That's really true. And I think as well what you were saying, Charlie, uh, with the fact that they already have a large amount of um, public, not support necessarily, but they're, they're talking um, 
on a lot of issues that the public already do largely care about. I don't know necessarily if they do need to be um, trying to attract new people. I don't think environmentalism is something that's particularly controversial. I think, however, largely we need to try and think of ways which we can actually uh, see tangible change and talk about solutions rather than just raising the awareness of problems, which I think Extinction Rebellion is largely guilty of, um, mostly focusing on the negative effects of a lot of issues without actually offering any real tangible solutions. Yeah, I think the best way to look at this is that not only can the government be doing things, uh, but we as individuals could too. We can't wait around for Boris Johnson to fix the environment for us. We as people can start to make changes, small changes, on an individual level, on a national scale, and we can make a real difference just by ourselves. I agree, and not only is it uh, practical change as well in terms of our lifestyles that's required, but I think also we need to start looking at what sort of change we can make in our communities, um, in our politics, to try and uh, affect change at that, that top-down level as well. So things like tackling overpopulation by immigration, as well as speaking to you know local MPs and councils about, uh, you know, new housing developments. All these things play a part in trying to tackle environmentalism. It's not something you can just deal with from a one-directional approach. You've got to tackle it at all different levels of society. In conclusion, XR do work well um, for what their objective is, but there needs to be multiple approaches. There needs to be multiple prongs to the environmental argument. Uh, XR is one of them, um, but smaller changes need to be made in other areas too. I totally agree. I think that's been a big weakness in many political movements in the past. It's where they've expected some kind of messiah group that's perfect with all the perfect approaches for every single situation to come around. And in reality, it's you need different groups for different situations and most importantly, unity between these different groups to affect real change. That's all I've got to say on the topic. Does anyone else have anything else to say? No, I think that's all from me. Yeah, me too. Alright then, well I suppose that's the end of this episode. If you want to read more about Extinction Rebellion, one of us wrote an article recently on our website, which is thelocalist.org, so be sure to check that out. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at localmatterseng, and if you're feeling generous, give us a donation at paypal.me forward slash localmatters. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.